The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to The Peripheral. Trying to stick to a monthly release schedule. So on the 15th of every month, you'll get new content. On this episode, I speak with Shane and Brent. Some of you might know Shane from the Foul Play podcast, or if you listen to Generation Y, he was on the Redhead Murders. This story hit a lot closer to home for Shane and Brent. Shane actually covered this on his Foul Play podcast in a series that was released a few months ago called Making a Predator. It involves his friend Brent being catfished and ultimately bullied and harassed by some ex-roommates of his. I highly recommend you go check out Foul Play and listen to the series. You'll get a lot of the story listening to this interview where I speak with both Shane and Brent about what happened. So today's episode of The Peripheral is going to be a little different. I don't have just one guest. I have two so why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Of course, yeah. My name is Brent Allred. I am the senior audio engineer over at Arclight Media that produces several different podcasts. One of the primary ones that we work on is Foul Play. And I'm Shane Waters. I am the CEO of Arclight Media, and I also started the first podcast of Arclight Media, which was Foul Play in 2014. And then my second podcast, Hometown History, in 2016. And you just did a series that covered this story extensively. Want to talk a little bit about that? What makes the series unique in terms of a crime podcast is that it was one that I was an eyewitness to at the time. And it wasn't something that happened in recent times in terms of immediate it was prior to me ever imagining that I would have a crime podcast. If I would have known back then that I would have a crime podcast, I would have been doing a lot more recording and saving of documents and conversations. And it would have been a lot easier on myself if I would have done that. But what makes it unique is that I was there at the time when all this played out. And when we started looking at doing this as a possible series, we realized the extent of the story and the importance of talking about it, which is ultimately why we did it. And when you learn about the seriousness and all of the aspects of what happened, a lot of people may wonder, why would you want to talk about it? Why would you want to bring it up again, especially go through all the turmoil again, put yourself through it? Why would you want to do it? And I think it was because we wanted to bring awareness to the situation. A lot of people do not speak up and do not talk about what happened to them. And we were in a scenario where we could help share the story in a way that is unique to us. So that's ultimately, I think, why we decided to do the series. And the name of the series? The series is called Making a Predator. Kind of a play on making a murderer. Right. 
And ultimately, it gives you an insight that somewhere along the line, someone is trying to create a predator. And you don't really understand or know why or what's happening throughout the series. And as you listen longer, it starts to play out and you realize the name makes a lot of sense. Going back to what you're talking about with the series and actually sharing this story, because you're right, a lot of people don't speak up about situations that have happened to them that make them vulnerable. I think for me, and the reason why I chose to share this and bring this forward is the ability to help somebody else that has gone through something similar to this before, because there's a lot of people that go through this. And I think we don't a lot of times hear the guy's side of some of these stories, but we hear a lot of female victim stories that have happened with these types of scenarios. So I guess to help other people that have kind of gone through this is really why I chose to speak up about it. And to add to that, you'll understand more later when we talk about this in more detail, but we recognized immediately from doing other series that have been out on foul play, we've talked and done series about sexual abuse. And I've spoken and interviewed many women who have gone through childhood sexual abuse and sexual abuse, period. But the likelihood of men coming forward is very slim to none. And the one that did come forward, it was very hard for him to talk about and very hard for him to share it. And this was an opportunity to put what happened out into the universe and hopefully help anyone else who went through it to understand that they can speak out about it and normalize what happened and allow other people to talk about it as well. I'll also add, I think that when we started looking at the possibility of doing the series, our writer Nick and Brent were on board before I was. Because I remember the toll that this took on Brent back then. And being the leader here of this business and of this company and not wanting to see Brent go through things that he would have went through back then. Back then, that was out of my control. I was not responsible for Brent. The whole scenario that played out, I was not responsible for. I was just a witness of. So you didn't want to see him re-victimized, re-traumatized. Yes. And Justin, you know, and we've talked about this recently, people become very vocal when you're doing podcasts. Yeah. Even as a podcast host, we get feedback. And sometimes that feedback is hurtful. It's like they don't think that you'll hear it or that we're a real person with real feelings and emotions. And I knew doing it that Brent would receive some feedback that would push him I knew it would happen, and it did happen. And I didn't want to re-traumatize Brent or put him through that because I know ultimately it was me allowing it to happen, and I didn't want for that to happen. But once Brent said that he wanted to do it, and he said that even though his parents kind of sensed that he probably shouldn't do it because, again, they're wanting to protect him as well, that he still wanted to do it. Then I knew that at that point in time, it was not my place to tell him no, that we had to do it at that point, that it was an important story and we needed to go forward regardless of the consequences that would ultimately happen. You know, at the end of the day, I guess the healing has for the most part already taken place and what happened has happened and it's in the past and I've had my own way of processing and getting through all of this. 
for the most part, the feedback on the series has been relatively positive, but we've got those few that have honestly put me, I didn't think that it was going to happen to me. I was like, oh no, I'm not going to be emotionally traumatized by something somebody says because this is all in the past. Everything is good. But there have been two or three comments that have come through that Nick which is our writer and Shane shared with me and it hit me like a ton of bricks probably stayed up like two or three nights just kind of thinking through things and like okay what could have I done differently or what could have I said differently in the podcast that would have conveyed this message a little bit better exactly and that was the thing at that moment I almost felt re-victimized again and I'm trying to justify something that happened to me like it was my fault that all of this happened it's weird how we victim blame ourselves yeah and so that's what happened is I all of a sudden felt like the victim again I was on my phone late at night just texting a novel back to myself writing notes of like hey we could do this this differently or do that differently. And I pitched it to Nick and pitched it to Shane and was trying to come up with things like, well, how can we kind of convey this a little bit better? But, you know, at the end of the day, that was just my feelings, those wounds being reopened. And I know we've been talking about this for 10 minutes now, but I do think it's an important conversation to have, especially the fact that you know Brent, you're right. friends with him, you care about him. Yeah. And you had your reservations about him revisiting that place. That's actually something I've never really considered on the peripheral. When somebody writes in and says they want to share their story, I just think it's a foregone conclusion that they are okay with it. Never really considering maybe they're not because they reached out to me and I'm accepting it, but they could be getting re-traumatized. I thought I was okay with it at the start. We got mostly positive feedbacks like, okay, this is going to be okay. But then those few, it reopened those wounds. I got to the point where I told Shane, I was like, okay, I'm going to shut my Facebook down for a little bit. I don't want to have any of this negative. I just don't need that negative energy on me right now. To the point to where Brent asked us not to share. I just said, unless it's super, super important, just don't bother. Which we both Justin, you and I have both said that we've had to separate ourselves from the situation with feedback that we've gotten that sometimes I'm surprised that I've let myself take so personally. And even in the messages in one email specifically that we had received, they criticized my journalism or my integrity for being there and being an eyewitness to this and accusing me of being this perpetrator who was putting a perpetrator on a pedestal and I was just like you clearly weren't listening when Brent shared with us I quickly realized that it traumatized Brent and that it was too much for him and hopefully all the positive feedback will outshine all of the negative but as you and I know from doing this for so long we've been in this game a while (laughs) it's that negative that one negative voice out of the thousand positive ones that will cut that sharp wound. And that's what happened to Brent. And anytime you survive something and you have to feel like you have to prove that you didn't do something or that you aren't to blame for something, it's just difficult. And you had mentioned how you had this thought about people who get re-traumatized. And that is a thing. When you have to talk about things that you've survived and you have to come forward and you talk about it. But I think it's also important to realize That if a survivor of anything comes to you and says, I want to talk about this, 
it's not necessarily our place to say, we don't want to re-traumatize you. It's our place to say, how can we help you in terms of saying what you need to say and sharing it in the way that you need to share it? And then at the end of the conversation, making sure that they're okay. And so with that, can you summarize for us, Brent? What exactly happened to you? And if you haven't listened to Foul Play's Making a Predator, you should because spoiler alert, (laughs) but I couldn't do it in a paragraph, but I think you might be able to do it because it happened to you. So a couple roommates, Sean and Jacob, they were college friends of mine and against some of the professor's better judgment, they said, oh, you probably shouldn't move in with them because you're so close with them in school. And just being the young, naive kid and the camaraderie between three guys, three friends, we were like, oh, we're going to do it anyway. And so we did. So in particular, Sean, he was one of my close buddies in college. We were doing a lot of composition work together. We were in a music program together and things were going really well. We moved in together and without giving too much detail, we started these pranks that started happening between the three of us. And a lot of it just went south really quickly to the point where it got malicious. And I started to kind of see the true colors of them. I said some stuff that I'm really not proud of either, but the two of them really resonated with each other. And it kind of overflowed into attacking the landlord's like manager. And for example, this sounds really dumb, like really petty, but the manager left the water on outside, like the water spigot on outside of our house. And they start just harassing them on Facebook about this water spigot being left. You know, it's like, you good for nothing, manager. So these things got darker and darker to the point where the owner of the company literally had them police escorted off the property. We don't even really talk about that in the Making a Predator series, but these escalated to the point where she felt like that was a necessity. So for several months preceding that, there was just all these different jokes. Actually, matter of fact, Sean had a friend of his that ended up moving into one of the rental properties that the owner owned. And there's like this list of comments of them joking about not being able to be on that property because they got kicked out of the other person's property, but yet that was their friend. So they're joking online about, haha, we're over at one of your other properties with our other friend <laughs> kind of thing. So this kind of situation plays out and their malicious crosshairs move to you. Yeah, yeah. It moves over kind of into me because I was working for the company at the time. So it was kind of one of those situations where I honestly didn't want to lose my job. I was mowing lawns and taking care of some of the maintenance stuff at the rental properties. The family that owned the properties, I was really good friends with. And it was my job through college to get me through. And obviously I didn't want to be on bad terms with them. And at the same time, things that are going on with the property, I going to make for sure that those properties are in good condition, safe at that point in time and things that are being damaged or all of that stuff I had to report even to the point of bad tenants. I had to report those kind of things. So I was also looking out for myself in that regards as well. But yeah, like you said, things started to transition over to me. It was my fault because they got kicked out of the property. Before they got kicked out, there were negative interactions between them and you as well. Yes. To kind of elaborate a little bit more on that, part of the reason why 
they were kicked out was because of the interactions that started to play between the three of us as a whole, but starting to be personal attacks on me. So similar to like the managers, and they were just kind of doing it to a little bit of everybody. And what started out as jokes turned into malicious. So once they got kicked out, a few months down the road, this is where things turned. I thought I was done with them. Didn't think I was going to really ever talk with them ever again. And I get a friend request from somebody that looks like they went to my old high school. Small high school, Shane can personally attest. Our graduating class was one of the largest graduating class at Wapahani. It was like almost 120 people, I think, at that time, but the average is like under 80. So the whole school itself is maybe 300 people tops. But we never, even in that small school alone, we never really talked to each other. So I just thought it was somebody that I went to school with. How old are you at this point? So at this point, I'm in college. This is 2010. So it's like 21, 22. You're old enough there. to drink. Yeah, old enough to drink. We'll say that. Yeah, and so I'm old enough to drink. Yeah. You get a Facebook friend request from a female yes. who you suspect is around your same age. Yes. I think he was a junior. Yeah, junior in college. The interesting thing is, you know, just trying to recall all this stuff is, you know, it's been so long ago. Well, I, th- I think to clarify on that, though, yeah. it's not that it was such a long time ago either. After it all ended, I think that you were ready for it to be done. I tried to mentally block it out. So even when we were talking about it, you were realizing that, oh, this happened too. And then this happened. And then this happened. And then you started realizing that after you were done with this, like you were really done with it. So you were trying to move on from it. I get this Facebook message from a person by the name of Ashley. Ashley Marie in particular was the name on the Facebook profile. The Facebook profile had close to three or 400 friends. Well, all of those were friends that were my friends as well. So they were all mutual friends. So to me, at that point in time, there had been a bunch of posts on the Facebook page. So I thought that, you know, this person's actually real. So I accepted the friend request and I got a couple messages from her. We had an online romance for probably close to two or three weeks that had kind of progressed into closer than friendship, I guess you could say. I mean, I started to really develop feelings for her. And just to clarify real quick, at no point did you think this person was underage? At no point did you think this person was under 18? You thought they were around your same age. Yeah. And they're friends with your friends that are in your age group. Exactly. They say they had graduated from your same high school. Everything in this profile. Exactly. And there was no indication on the profile whatsoever that she was even, there was no age on the profile to begin with. So it just said on Facebook where it says you went to high school at blah, blah, blah. I remember specifically saying she went to Wapahani. Went so to. Went and yeah. went. Yeah. yeah. So that was the key there. And I honestly, like we got to talk and we didn't even talk age. That wasn't even a thought. I was just excited at the fact that I had someone that I thought was genuinely interested in me. And the fact that I thought that I had a lot of things in common with this person. And so Facebook messaging went a little bit deeper and we agreed to start exchanging text messages. Got our phone number and we started texting back and forth. And we agreed to meet at a IMAX theater. Super excited. Super excited. Yeah. Yeah. Nerves. You know, at this point, we had been talking for a good while and I was just excited. In the podcast series, you'll hear me talk about, I was the shy guy in high school, college. 
I was that guy that was, to be honest with you, looking for love, but I was like terrified to talk to somebody, (laughs) you know, terrified to talk to girls. So the fact that she was one to me was, I never really had that before. She initiated the conversation. She initiated. She kept the conversation going. Exactly. So the fact that I had someone that was keeping conversation and actively engaging in me, I was like, man, this is, this is a really good sign, you know? So you go to this movie. Yes. And so she's not there. I show up to the movie theater and I go ahead and get the tickets and I get a text message basically saying, hey, something come up. I'm going to be a little bit late. I'm not able to get my ride. She was getting a ride from, I think it was actually her mom or something like that. There was a story that kind of played out there is the reason why she was late. So I got the movie tickets and I actually went in and sat down on the movie because I didn't want to miss like the first part of the movie. And then I got a text message and I said, hey, I'm here. And so I come out, and what do I see? This was such a whirlwind moment. So it's really hard for me to really explain what happened because I have such a flood of emotions that actually really hit me like a ton of bricks and it was just a very numbing thing so i gotta be honest with you outside of the motions i don't even really know the details because it was so traumatizing at that point but i had walked out and all of a sudden i had these two guys and a couple guys behind with video cameras on me basically saying brent Brent, she's not real. You've been duped. I'm kind of looking around. I'm like standing there by myself. The, there's a clerk off the left of me handling the tickets and concession stands. And the guy's just kind of looked at me. He's like, you know, what's going on? Are you being like catfish? Are you being like duped? And I was like, I didn't even know what catfish. <laughs> you know, I didn't even know what that even meant. And he was like, I, I looked at him. I was like, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. And they're joking, cutting up. They've got this all on videotape. And I don't really know how long it lasts. I just was like really super embarrassed. And all of a sudden I see them fling the door back open. And they just take off running across the parking lot with their video camera. And that was it. Like, I'm just standing there dumbfounded. And that guy that's in there working was, in a way, trying to kind of, I, I don't know, I felt like was trying to kind of console me. But I just kind of ignored him. I was just like, I don't know. I just, like, brushed him off. You were in and shock. I was. And I, I didn't know what to say. And to be honest with you, I didn't know what to do. And, like hearts pounding and to this day i probably should have just went home but i didn't i just i literally just kind of i remember head down defeated confused at what was going on walk back into the movie to this day I, i don't even remember what movie it was like i was so just i remember just staring at the movie screen but not actually watching it and just trying to process what happened for an entire hour and a half by that time it was dark. I walked out in the movie theater. I remember my car actually being on the far side of the movie theater where a lot of people honestly don't park. So I'm walking out there in this just vacant, like open lot on that far side, just by myself thinking what just happened is just such a heart wrenching. Like I just felt like my heart was just ripped out of my chest. Now you tried to text her though. I did. Yeah. And because I didn't believe it was real, I tried to text back. I was just like, Hey, what's going on? My roommates came in and said, Hey, you're not real. Like what's happening. And I'm trying to text back to who I thought was this real person. And I got nothing at all. So I go from all these messages to absolutely nothing. So you go to meet a girl for first date that you've been speaking to for months, super excited. And then you get your two asshole roommates in your face with a camera telling you she's not real. Yeah. Yes. And now you 
get in your car and drive home. Yeah. So I just remember that being probably one of the longest drives of my entire life. And you're out the price of an extra movie ticket. Yeah. Yeah. On top of that, you know, it's, yeah, you're right. It's just like spend all that money and I get home and I'm just kind of beside myself and Shane's sitting on the couch. He can kind of describe the facial expression, but it'd look like I had just seen a ghost. Like I had walked in and I'm like just mopey and just, yeah. A minute ago, Justin, you mentioned how this was their first date. So I had just moved in a couple weeks prior. So I was his new roommate, and we also had another new roommate, Zach. So Zach and I had just moved in a couple weeks prior. And as Brent mentioned, although we went to high school together, we didn't ever communicate in high school. It was actually a Facebook post that Brent made looking for two roommates that Zach and I went and met with Brent. I knew that Brent went to Wapahani, and I so I knew about Brent. So after meeting him, we moved in. And so Brent had shared with me that he was dating this girl, talking to this girl, and they had been talking for six months. So it's not like he was going to meet this girl that he just happened to be talking with. It was a friend. They were more than just friends. They were talking to each other in the terms of sharing things that you share with each other when you are in a romantic relationship with someone for a long time. And according to your generation or your comfort level, when you deal with people who are online dating, it may sound weird that Brent had not met her for six months, but was still in a relationship with her. But that wasn't uncommon at the time. You know, we're talking about around 2010. So that was quite common. And I was aware of it. I knew that Ashley existed. I knew that Brent was talking to her and that they were in this relationship. I knew what she looked like. Brent has showed me her pictures on Facebook. Nothing about what Brent shared with me up to that point made me ever think this girl was not who she said she was or that these pictures were not of someone who was not of our age. I remember seeing the Facebook profile and that she was friends with a lot of people that both Brent and I graduated with. And people who are around our age in high school. So it would lead one to believe that she was our age as well. So knowing all of that, Brent comes home that night after his movie. And I knew that he had been going out to this movie to meet her. And I remember Brent leaving and he dressed all up real nice. You know, as you do on your first date with a girl you're meeting and... So he came home. I'm pretty sure he had on a jacket or something. He just looked really nice and had dress shoes on. And he comes home and I wanted to hear all about it. How was it? You know, how was this girl everything that you thought? And Brent looked like he had just been in an accident or someone just died. And I knew immediately something was horribly wrong. And I was watching TV. I turned the TV off and I'm like, Brent, what's wrong? What happened? And he just is just standing there and he's just like, I, I don't, I don't even, I don't know. And he explains to me that his two former roommates showed up and that they said that she wasn't real, that Ashley wasn't real. And I don't remember if Brent actually said that they were filming but I think that he said that they had a camera, but he, you know, that, that detail didn't really make sense to us. Why would they film this? So in that moment, we're both dumbfounded 
because here his two former roommates know about this relationship that Brent has had. He's not communicated with them in a long time. So we both had a lot of questions that we just couldn't answer. And Brent, I'm here trying to comfort Brent. And I can't answer those questions for him. And he's trying to make sense of something that you can't make sense of because we didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle that we have now. So he couldn't quite wrap his brain around it. And I remember all of the details of that because of how I mean, I thought someone died or that he was in a horrible accident. Something horrible happened. I knew something horrible happened. So I remember we were talking about what happened. But again, when you hear the details about his two former roommates coming in with cameras, it doesn't make sense. Why would they do this? Six-month relationship with Brent? Why would they do it? Like, the communication didn't make sense. Why would you spend that much time communicating with someone? Dear Lord, do you have that much time? I don't. None of it made sense to us. So that is where our extent with this was, and that's kind of where it laid for a couple days. I just thought that was it, to be honest with you. I was just like, well, okay, that's the end of that. I don't know what the situation was. Apparently they were the ones just messaging me, you know. And all of a sudden, I was, I'm pretty sure I was in one of my classes. And so for school, I had to, like when I would write my compositions for classes, we would a lot of times have to put them up on YouTube. And they would usually be labeled as like your first name and the title of the piece that you wrote. And so most of my compositions were Brent A. Allred. Uh, one of the compositions that I wrote was like a choral piece, so Secrets, for example. So I get done with class, and I come home, and I start working on finishing up a composition. I'm basically getting ready to upload it. I see this video that's on YouTube that says Brent A. Allred is a pedophile, and it's streaming through all my music stuff, and I'm like, oh, what the heck is this? And I hit play. And it's these guys with their video camera catching me on tape at the movie theater, at the movie theater, trying to make me out to look like something that I'm not. So they're, they're saying that you've been talking with a 13 year old or something talking like that. with a minor they're trying to convince general population in the school that I was talking to an underage girl and that I was arranging a date with them. So it's to catch a predator, have a seat. You weren't talking to a real girl. You were exactly, right, we're going to make it look like you were trying to exactly. Yeah. And so I didn't really know what to do. I was absolutely beside myself. You know, obviously this is running through all my music stuff. At this point, it had several views, but honestly, several views in that community is basically my entire world. From a collegiate standpoint, I know a couple of the professors saw it, and I straight up thought that I was toast. Like, I just thought I was done with school, my reputation for the most part, because it got around to the entire school at a certain point reputation was pretty much ruined and I just thought I was done with my career like everything you know what I was going to do and honestly for a day or two I said nothing about it then I think he just kind of pulled it out of me to be honest with you because I came home and he was like Brent what's going on it was one of those situations like talk to me what's what's happening and I could tell something was terribly wrong and I assumed that it was something to do with this girl he had been dating for six months not being real but something seemed like 
something had gotten worse and I could tell it, but I could also tell he didn't come to me to tell me, but I could also tell that I needed to pry it out of him somehow. Yeah. yeah I, I didn't want to say anything. Cause I mean, it's super embarrassing, you know, it's just like, I mean, that's a, a crazy, a vulnerable thing. And that's life damaging accusations. Yeah. Who, who wants to draw more attention to an accusation that you're a pedophile? Yeah. So what happens next is Brent in this living room of ours goes and he grabs his laptop he brings it in. We're both sitting on the couch. He puts it on the coffee table and he pushes play. And I remember almost every detail of the video because of how shocking it was. Because up until this point, we just, I just knew that his two former roommates came to the movie theater, said that they had been this girl that he had been talking to for six months. And that was everything. And until they posted this video, Neither Brent nor I knew of any other details. So when he pushes play, the video starts out with these two guys, his two former roommates, talking about how they have been pretending to be this girl and how this girl is underage and they're going to go bust Brent. They were excited about it. And that's what made me the most upset is that how excited they were about catching him. And they're out in the parking lot. They go into this movie theater. And you see Brent in this video. He's looking for this girl that he knows what she looks like. Those guys walk in with their cameras. Brent does not see them whatsoever, even though they are in his view. Because he knows the person that he's looking for. So in the video, you see Brent there all dressed up, excited, enthused. And there these guys are approaching him and saying, she's not real, Brent. It's been us. She's not real. And he's just like, then he realizes like these guys are talking to him and he's, what? Uh, Okay. And they're just, their tone and everything was just, It was a joke. It was funny. It was not serious. They're just delighting in the fact that they were delighted that they were busting him. And then they run out and they go out of the theater. And I remember looking over at Brent. The moment where they approached him, I remember looking at him and I said, now that's the moment where I would have punched him in the face. Just because of the smirk on his face you could just tell they were up to no good and i cannot stand bullies i've dealt with bullies before in high school i have no tolerance for bullies and that's one thing that stuck out about this is that i realized watching the video that this was a scenario that someone was being bullied and although i consider brent to be my friend we hadn't really known each other for a long period of time at that point I recognized someone was being bullied and I was not okay with it. And I remember just being very vocal about Brent. That's the moment where I would have physically been upset. (laughs) And Brent is like sitting there just defeated, not knowing what to do. And I knew Brent well enough to know that Brent would let it go. Brent's a pushover. I knew that about Brent just those three weeks or so that we were roommates And even to this day, I can tell you, Brent is a pushover. And 
the idea of someone getting away with something like that was just, it makes my blood boil. And right now I'm trying to control me shaking because I can just put myself right back there and imagine Brent being bullied by these guys and feeling like he has no one in that theater to defend him just made me sick. And then Brent just at the, at his computer, he's just like, I don't know how to get, I don't know what to do. And I looked at Brent and I said, was there any moment in time where you thought this girl was underage? And I said, before you answer that question, do not lie to me because if you lie to me, I will sing like a canary. And he said, no. And so he hands me his phone and he opens his computer and he let me read through any messages I would like to. And so there was nothing in any of this that would give Brent the impression that this girl was not who she said she was. And in that time, I realized that, that Brent, here was Brent, these guys were bullying him. And I honestly believe at that moment, Brent was going to let it happen. He didn't know what else to do. And that was going to be it. And maybe those guys knew that about Brent and thought that they could get away with it. Most bullies do target. Well, I got to be honest with you. If it wasn't for you, Shane, at that point in time, you're right. From a pushover standpoint, I hate that that word's used. Right. (laughs) Yeah. There's like me. Let's not call it a pushover. Let's just call it wouldn't be assertive. Well, I guess it's more or less a confrontational thing is I hate confrontation And I'd honestly would let pretty much anything run me over and put me almost in harm's way or deal with it internally. I would rather do that than a lot of times. I I hate to say that, but I do that. I would do that to see, just see something either go away or take the blunt of something for somebody else to help someone else out, even though it's physically or mentally impacting me then I guess I've always been that way. When I say that, like, I don't want to make people think that here I am, I'm this flyer of the justice flag. Like, that wasn't the case at that time. Being bullied in high school, a lot of people have gone through it. And when someone does something to me, I don't necessarily have the backbone to stick up for myself. And there's one memory that I can share that will lay this out perfectly. In high school... When I would go to one of my classes, there was these three guys who would always throw Skittles at me. Every day, without fail, they would throw Skittles at me, and I would just take it, pretend like it didn't hurt, and would move on. One day, I was walking with a friend, and they threw Skittles at me, and they hit her too, and now I was not okay with that. That was beyond my ability to take that in. And I felt like they were then bullying her too. And I went and reported it and I made sure that it didn't happen again, but I wouldn't have done that for myself. And if I would have been in Brent's shoes at that time, I wouldn't have defended myself. But the fact that happened to someone and I could, I saw it happen and I cared about Brent. I couldn't just let Brent not do something. So I knew that I had to push him. We had to do like, he, he can't just sit there and let this sit. Like YouTube is a big deal. And when someone says that you're doing something with a minor, that's not 
just at the time when he showed me the video, it, it had only been there for a couple of days and there was already a, more than a hundred people who viewed it, which may not sound like a lot in modern day terms, but in a community where you have all of your professors and teacher and students watching a video that says that you had an inappropriate relationship with a child, that's a hundred people too many. Brent might not have vocalized this to you, but he had just vocalized it to us. He's like, my career's over. I'm toast. Yeah. yeah. And what does that translate into? I have no reason to live. You're right. You know, Shane saw it in me, and he had said this before. He said this multiple times that he thought I was going to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point in time, didn't necessarily have those thoughts. But the fact that he could see that on me, who knows where that would have went if he didn't actually push me to seek you know, take action on this and go to yeah you know, he basically was like right you need to go take action do something and that's kind of the point where i was like okay well where else do i go i i went to the guidance counselor at ball state being at the guidance counselor he took all the information and it was interesting because i had didn't really know how they were going to take this because like i said this is kind of a vulnerable thing but it got pretty serious pretty quick with the university they took this incredibly seriously. They gave me my own private detective, basically, that was hired by Ball State, was on Ball State's campus. And this just crazy story unfolds underneath all of this. And we start to find that, obviously, we know Sean, Jacob, they were a part of this, that they were messaging me. But we find out from this detective because they subpoenaed some of the text messages and just the information to try to pinpoint what happened. And we find out that they started by messaging me on social media through Facebook. And in the interchange of going from Facebook to text message, they convinced two minors from the local high school that Sean was a student teacher at during summer band programs, convinced these two minors that were in his band program to play a prank on one of my buddies. So a figure of authority is now getting his female students to catfish, harass, and even sexed with an adult yes later on i find out that the girl that sean asked to help play this prank on me found out that she had been passing the phone back and forth just to keep this communication going between her and her 13 year old sister and so for close to three months or better i was texting a 16 year old and a 13 year old girl back and forth and developing a relationship with them and just crazy. So with that being said, it's hard to convince someone otherwise because I mean, that happened. (laughs) You know, it's like that happened. I was actually physically texting, but I was completely oblivious. So they had set me up. Now let's be clear here as well. At that point, you realize that you weren't just texting these two former roommates, 
it was always one of four people. Yeah. yeah. Like, how much does that mess a person up when you think you're in a relationship with this girl? And even when we were recording for the series, Brent would talk about Ashley like she's still real. And then we would have to reel him in and say, she wasn't. She was one of four people. You're two former roommates, a high school senior or a 13-year-old girl. It's really bizarre because I still have this overall sense of like who this fictional person actually was. And so they had just developed this complete persona off of four different people. And so throughout this entire series, like I talk about Ashley as she's actually a real person because to me, she was. Well, and it's easier for a frame of reference for you. Just yeah. talking to Ashley. Yeah. I'm not, instead of saying, I was talking to four different people who were catfishing me and harassing me all for a malicious, terrible prank to destroy my life. Yeah. It's, I was talking to who I truly believed was somebody who cared about me too. Right. And the university did not, the detective was not Brent's. The university did their own investigation. Brent reported what happened. At that point in time, the university did an investigation to figure out what what happened. Did Brent know that he was talking to this underage girl? Were these students accurately trying to share the awareness of this underage relationship? And in the investigation, they realized that Brent was completely innocent and was a victim here. Because they would have gone after him. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. absolutely. And yeah. also, to back up for a moment, you also have to have the understanding that when Brent was going through all of this and trying to figure out who to talk to and who to go to. Who to report this to. Who do you report this to? <laughs> yeah. At some point, he has to tell his parents. And the facts, it's a complicated story. It's complicated. The facts sound horrible. And the more that you learn, the more that you have to share with your parents, the more that it just sounds very complicated and horrible. And when the more that Brent would share with me these updates on what they would find, like, oh, there's these girls, like they were involved. And he at some point was texting these girls. My fear turned from, Brent's either going to harm himself or Brent's going to be harmed because then the wide belief that was happening was people were aware of what was happening. People were aware of this investigation and people were aware of this whole relationship. And I thought at any point in time, Brent is either going to harm himself or he will be harmed. The parents, the boyfriend, somebody re- in well, relation yeah, so, with any so, time. Anytime yeah. you deal with a pedophile, anyone can harm you. It doesn't have to be someone related to these underage girls. The public was not going to have it, you know. And so, anyone who knew the story, you've heard stories of pedophiles going to prison, and you know what happens to them. People don't stand for it, and that was clear. That I thought Brent was going to be in danger because of that. Even to follow up that with the danger aspect to this, some of Sean and Jacob's friends through social media posts that we had collected during this, they were physically talking about beating me with a baseball bat. And just because of all the allegations and things that were out. Now, I don't know if that was really necessarily in context to their accusations of me being a pedophile, that kind of thing. But all of that stuff's just started to kind of surface after all this happened. So it's just, it's, it's still tough, but it is, it's tough, you know? 
I've been on the receiving end of false allegations myself. Nothing to the caliber of that. Yeah. But it definitely makes you feel helpless, hopeless. Yeah, and because fearful. how do you it's so difficult to how do you prove your yourself on all this? Like, like the more you like, talk, the, the worse more you, you talk, look. It, because exactly, it's like the more I talk, it, the worse it looked. It's like Oh, I'm texting a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. You know, that's that's awful. Right, and that's the fact <laughs> of the situation he you know, was. And that's actually what happened. And so it's like you're trying to share this information and just any way that I tried to convey a lot of this, it just did not sound good. And even the girls' dad vocalized well, yeah, to the so, university that they were Yeah, so the family, the family and, was incredibly upset. They were which is kind of bizarre to me. This was a conversation I had between the detective at the time that they were upset at me and was wanting to press charges on me. So they're upset with you who's been duped into texting this, their daughter in a fake fabricated relationship that their student teacher created. Yeah. They're not mad at the student teacher. Yeah. They're mad at you who was the victim of this. Yeah. So that goes to show, though, the, I think, the lack of information or just how well that they covered some of this stuff up. Because, obviously, everything's kind of come out in the wash now, but and that's the reason why they didn't press charges, because they finally kind of figured out everything. But in that moment, it was all on me. I mean, that's really kind of the point of all that, is that it was all pointed back at me. And so you're trying to go to college trying to become a composer you're trying to accomplish all of these things this is your life dream what kind of mental impact and what kind of motivation did you have to do anything at this point to be honest with you at a certain point and to be fair i pretty much gave up on my college degree with my bachelor's still to this day i kick myself i'm absolutely furious i'm literally i'm six credits shy of a composition degree and still to this day out of kind of embarrassment i tell people that i have a composition degree because in my heart i do because i was there i was completing the program and i wanted to but at a certain point because of the turmoil that i was going through i was just done i was mentally emotionally not able to cope at that point in time we had to go through what's called the junior standing, which is what was required of me to get my degree, which was a level of piano proficiency. And I was in one of my piano classes during that time. And these are very intensive classes. I expected to practice three to four hours a day, if not more on top of a full regimen of classes. And I just buckled. I failed the jury. And to the professors, they don't care of the excuses. They don't know what I was going through. Some of them did just because of the video and everything was out. But for the most part, that didn't matter from a collegiate standpoint. I didn't, you know, achieve what I needed to do. So honestly, due to a cork in the academic calendar, and we kind of talk about that in the podcast, they wouldn't let me back into the piano studio. And they were going to hold me back to redo the previous piano course for the standard of the jury and it was going to put me having to redo those classes as an additional two years to get my degree so because of that one instance it was going to set me back two years of actually getting my composition degree 
I didn't really know what to do. Like I pretty much gave up. I literally was like, you know, what? I remember the day that I told my mom that I was like, I'm done. I can't handle this anymore. I'm just, I'm super stressed out. I don't have any support. There's nobody like really helping me like through any of this. When I say in the podcast, it was literally mom and I against the world. She was the closest person to me that actually really understood what was going on. And I remember just head down in shame, driving to the administrative office to pick up my bachelor's in general studies, six credits shy of a composition degree. I still had some credits to get a bachelor's in general studies. I was super upset, pretty much in tears. And I was, I was defeated. I was embarrassed. I wanted my grandparents, they've since passed away, but my two grandmas in particular, I wanted them to be able to see me <laughs> choking up to be honest with you see me walk across that stage because they were so proud of me and what I was doing with music and I was too embarrassed to walk across that stage with a general studies degree as a bachelor's degree and so to this day I still don't have it I tried to get a master's degree but because I don't have that degree I haven't been able to get in anywhere I can only imagine how many people have something traumatic happen to them during college whether it be a death or they're sexually assaulted or they're bullied, whatever yeah. it is, and they never finish their degree, their yeah. dream. My personal opinion is you are a fabulous composer and a piece of paper doesn't <laughs> Thank you. mean shit, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. But in that moment, honestly, at that point in time, that was everything to me because I grew up in a household where those things meant that you were successful and now that's a whole totally different thing in itself but at that point of time that was felt like a failure and to this day i'd honestly like to go back and get a composition degree at some point i think i probably will i think also an important thing that brent needs to share is that prior to his roommate starting this whole thing is that he had won an emmy he had been nominated for the second time for composing music for a documentary and he had just won that Emmy. So going into all of this disappointment on feeling like this general studies degree wasn't holding up to his standard, I think a part of that at the time and knowing Brent and talking to him back then was that here he has this Emmy he had just, that was rare to be a college student and having gotten that Emmy. And then now he couldn't achieve what he was trying to achieve and buckling at a moment when he wished that he didn't. With such a large clout, I mean, the, the Emmy, that, that's a huge significance. And that put even more pressure on me to be successful because of the quality of work at that point in time that I was producing. I had a lot of people looking at me. I even remember my freshman year of college, I had entered that piece, Secrets, into a choral competition. It was an international choral competition at Ithaca College in New York. And one of the composition professors had been entering into that same contest for, I think at that point in time, I think she said like close to 10 years and got absolutely nothing. And I got accepted into that prestigious event. And I showed up 
just turned 18. <laughs> I was with my dad and the other contestants. Most of them had doctoral degrees in music already. And here I am just getting my start. I guess moving forward, all of this was just such a huge pressure and people that I'd created this such large persona about my degree, the Emmy and all that kind of stuff. It just kind of made it worse. The failure, I guess I'd been put, I guess the best way to, to explain it is like, I felt like I had been put up on a pedestal, if that makes sense, because of that statue. It wasn't intentional, but it's just like, I felt like I had to do something way above and beyond the natural human being because I held that shiny piece of gold. You're up on a pedestal. And then you had that pedestal kicked out from underneath you. Yeah. And then it's this reflection on all this wasted potential. Yeah. But you're not wasted potential because you have continued on and utilized your skills and talents. Yeah. But it sucks because even to this day, you probably have it in the back of your head. Like I could have done more. I yeah. could have done this, but because of this one event, that changed everything. I mean, and even in your dating life, yeah. like it, it, it affects yeah. more than just your dream of becoming a composer. It affects every aspect. It was a self-identity thing. It was questioning my every being, who I thought I was, if that makes any sense. So how did this all pan out? You and everyone's being investigated. So what's the outcome of all of this? The outcome was that the investigation proves that only I'm innocent. Let's say that again. You were completely exonerated, had no wrongdoing. You were not <laughs> yes. speaking to, yeah. you were not a pedophile. You were not, yeah. Yeah, yeah at, the, at the end of the day, there was no question to begin with, you know, but I had to go through this multi-layer thing of trying to prove my innocence, which I shouldn't have had to do in the first place, but... Ball State, they exonerated it all the way down to the federal court case that yeah. we talk about a little bit at the end of the fourth series. Before we get to episode. the federal court case, though, so Ball State decides that after their investigation, they realize that Brent's innocent and this is a case of bullying, extreme online bullying. And to blame here, they place the blame on his two former roommates and they decide that they have to hold them accountable. So Ball State University ends up suspending the two former roommates because of a violation of their student code of conduct, saying that they violated their student code of conduct by bullying Brent. The two underage females, they also get held accountable by their schools for their involvement. But that was outside of Ball State's investigation. Those schools did their own investigation as well and found the same conclusion. What happens next is Brent, in his moment of then trying to focus on himself and his degree and trying to get his life back together, he tries to move on from the situation by forgetting it completely and moving on with his life. So until we started researching the case in terms of trying to find more documents about what happened back then for the series, we did not know about this federal court case. So yeah. we are at Brent's apartment one day trying to find documentation 
any documentation online about this, about Ball State's investigation and stuff. And I come across this federal court case and I'm like, guys, and I was like, Brent, did you know that this was a federal court case? And he's like, no, what are you talking about? Because he wasn't involved. Right. And Brent's, yeah, like, Brent's like, no one told me, <laughs> yeah. you know. So yeah. we read through all of the documents and what we find is when you hear of a federal court case, you would assume that Ball State did something in federal court. But what happens is the two former roommates sue Ball State University in federal court. But they sue Ball State University and a bunch of the the president of the university, the investigator, a bunch of people personally as well in the federal investigation, or excuse me, in the federal case. Quickly, the judge dismisses the personal and leaves it down to the two students versus Ball State University. And the students were trying to say that their rights were violated because the university had no right to uphold its student code of conduct because the events that happened played out online. And the students say that, that what, hap- what, they, what, what they did with Brent was it wasn't really bullying. It was joking around. It was really not that serious. And that, in all honesty, they were trying to out a pedophile. So, again, they accuse Brent in this federal court case of Be them trying to act as this. The righteous. The righteous, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, this all goes to the judge and they have to prove the case. And so, it, it lasted for a good while of them trying to prove. And, and at the end, the judge comes out very strongly. And I will say that I had a lot of respect for the judge because she does not mention Brent by name. She calls him the target. And I respect that because Brent had gone through enough. And she says that in her summary. And I noticed Brent wasn't subpoenaed for this case at all. Yeah, and they mention it. They mention that they can prove all of what happened because of all the investigation documents. And Ball State could provide all of that documentation. So, again, Ball State had to defend Brent in federal court case in the court so that Ball State could defend its right to uphold those two students accountable. So the judge, in her summary, comes out strongly against these students. And his, she, his ex-roommates that right. catfished them and harassed them. And- right. And what's unique about the federal court case is it happened not long after the movie Catfish came out. And this was the first federal court case that involved the terminology catfish. So the judge goes into this long terminology of what catfishing means, and she references the movie. And so she explains that Brent was catfished by these students, and she criticizes these students for saying that what they did was not bullying. She was like, this is an extreme case of bullying. In fact, her summary can now also be found in textbooks. Dealing with online bullying and universities upholding their student code of conduct for online bullying. So ultimately, the judge sides with Ball State University saying they had all right. Those two students were in the clear wrong here. Ball State had the right to kick them out because of what they did. So legal precedent has now been set based on two arrogant bullies who went after you 
And then were so arrogant and brazen that they thought they were the victims in this deal, sue the university in federal court, and then get smacked down hard. They did. Yeah, the yeah. students were trying to claim that the university was violating their right to speak. Spe- freedom of speech. Freedom of speech, yeah. yeah. And the judge smacked that down quick. And so now the reason it's in textbooks is because this case will be referenced in instances of any time this has to be defended and any time universities have to defend their right to uphold their student code of conduct. And and so the bullying doesn't have to be physical in your face on the campus. It can be online. It can be outside of the campus property. Right. And so therefore it's any action, any violation of conduct while you're a student, while you're enrolled is now yeah. a violation. Protection of, yeah, it's, it's for the protection of all their students just in general. Yeah, and, and the judge was clear that this was an extreme version of bullying. And I will say that there was a lot of details in our series and even in this conversation that we did not mention about some of the details about what those guys were doing to Brent when they were roommates about the bullying. And the judge mentions it about this all came up in the court case. And the judge clearly is like, guys, this guy was being bullied horribly. And it, and the fact that it went on for so long, she makes a comment. She's like, it's not being asked of me. I can't do a favor here, but she's like, this could be something where this may not be legal. And I think for a while, when you read through the summary and you read about the case and when you hear about it, I think that you get this impression and you get this feeling like, oh, I really hope that Brent is now validated and he was righted. Because when you learn that the ball state believed him, and then the federal court case believed him, you would think that there would be this perfect happy ending that happens for the university, for Brent. But that doesn't necessarily happen that way. No, and you guys even cover it thoroughly in a series. Yeah. And you still got some hate, hate mail <laughs> yeah. accusing Brent of being guilty as charged because right. he, he did exchange text messages with underage people, even though at no point was he aware of this right yeah but some folks just don't want to hear that and i can sympathize myself i mean you sympathize because you know what bullies are and i was bullied too but then i've had completely fabricated allegations made about me and the more i would say the more i would try to defend myself the more it would just be shredded and you're a terrible person but here we are well, and that's what happened to me is like when those first came in and what we were talking about at the beginning is that I was going through my mind trying to figure out how to validate myself. So and I'll just be real quick on this. But one of the ones that kind of came in was basically to the extent that I am not as innocent as I seem. And it had to do with a post that Jacob posted up of me writing happy birthday douchebag or happy birthday douche on a birthday cake, which at that point of time, this was February that this happened of that year. 
this was like four or five months prior to all this happening. At that point in time, this was still camaraderie among friends. And this is honestly, this is four months earlier. Yeah, this right. is the three of us. Honestly, I bought that birthday cake out of genuine, you know, just being nice, you know, as as a friend. And I remember Sean coming in the back. So our house, I just kind of give you a visual. There was a back door to the back, and I was in the kitchen, and he comes walking in the back door, and I've got this birthday cake sitting out on the table. And I'm getting ready to like try to write something on it. And I was thinking, I was like, well, I'll just write happy birthday, but I want to come up with something funny because that's all I got him. I got him a cake, you know? And so Sean and I are just joking back and forth. And finally, I don't know what was said, but basically the exchange, yeah, the exchange between the two of us, we were just like, I wrote happy birthday douche with a smiley face on this birthday cake. And, and that somehow makes you now guilty yeah, that well, is being used against you for is, over six months of bullying. Yeah. And, so that was just this combatant against the pranks that were going back and forth that ended up turning dark. But well, oddly enough, one of my friends actually made me a birthday cake and she wrote burn in hell on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so if you think about like camaraderie among guys, camaraderie among your friends, just in general, it doesn't matter if it's guys or girls, we all do that, you know? And that's what was happening. And so this came up after all this situation plays out. So Jacob reshared the post of the birthday cake that got posted online and me writing happy birthday douche and saying on February of blah, blah, blah date, Brent was in the creation of writing happy birthday douche on a birthday cake. And this is in violation of xyz and defamation of character and just kind of goes on this big old long paragraph and but my argument was you weren't wrong yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah now Now we know yeah Yeah, we're not wrong i mean (laughs) yeah but but yeah so just little petty things like that and i i honestly you know when those things started to come in i didn't think that stuff was going to bother me and then it started to kind of hit me again and re-tear, I guess, open those wounds. And so that's why I asked Shane. I was just like, you know what, if it's petty like that, just I don't want to hear it unless it's something like super serious, you know, and so. But it's a good point to bring up. But but you're right. And I, I feel like I feel like I have to still defend myself against that stuff, even though I should absolutely not have to. And why does a victim, why do we go and dig up all the dirt on a victim to try to discredit them when they're the ones that have been victimized. I understand that we want to figure out all the evidence. We want to understand what transpired here. But when a university and a federal court sided with you, I don't think there's any more digging that someone's going to do on social media that's going to solve the case. You're right. (laughs) And and I think some of part of this too is that a lot of people I think that has come in has talked about that this seems very one-sided and that we're not hearing from the others. And to make everybody aware, we reached out. So, so I actually reached out to the girls. I had reached out to them on Facebook. Because they were manipulated by They were manipulated yeah. too. They were part of the victims. And honestly, this series was more or less about, in essence, me, Foul Place episodes are more centered towards the victim in a way. So that's kind of what it was about. But it wasn't like we didn't reach out to to some of them. So I felt comfortable reaching out to the girls. So I did. So I reached out to them and I reached out to Ball State and we asked some of the individuals to participate in the series. And we had one in particular that was all for it. But we had to go through the communication and marketing's department 
and they turned us down. They weren't all for it. Yeah, they were not all for it. So, and part of it is obviously this has potential to paint them in a bad light, but that was honestly the exact opposite of what we were trying to do. We were honestly trying to share the fact that this is one of the first times that a student code of conduct has been upheld in federal court. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. I think also another point that we quickly realized was worth us telling and sharing the series was that these two guys put two young girls in danger. And the two guys went on to defend themselves and do whatever in federal court Ultimately, that was shut down, but they never really faced consequences beyond suspension. They end up enrolling in different universities, continuing their education and their degrees and their career path. And I'm not saying that they're horrible people. I am, but yeah. But <laughs> my point here is that when you have a situation when you're endangering children. If Brent would have been a pedophile, can you imagine what would have happened? The story would be so much different. It would have been a different foul play episode. And that is the story that I think kind of gets lost in the he said, she said over this entire thing. Even in the defense, we've received a lot of positive feedback and even the few negative feedbacks Those people have not touched on anything to deal with the fact that these two young females, these two children, were put in danger by two adults. It's always, can you defend what Brent did? Is Brent innocent or is he guilty? But no one ever looks to see who put the children in danger. And that, I think, is the moment that just makes me very upset about this whole thing. And Brent, Brent felt when we were doing the series, when the two girls get held accountable by their schools and get expelled, he kind of felt badly for them for that. He did, because at the end of the day, they were just doing what their teacher told them to do. Right. You You had no responsibility, yet you felt guilty. I did. I felt awful. Like, I I was just like, here are these girls, especially the apology that I got from the one. She was just like, I felt awful. She got pulled the office, and she was crying. I mean, that's a terrifying situation to go through, you know? Yeah, I think that the story could be so much different If the people involved and the people responsible, if they would be like, you know what we did was wrong. We shouldn't have done it. It should have been prevented. But then they speak out against what they can do to prevent it from happening in the future. But instead, what they did with the federal court case was it was about them again. They doubled down on their bullying. Yes. And, And even with this narrative... I think that the narrative should now be after Brent shares his story and what's happened to him, we now need to see that once Brent is found innocent, because back then when Brent was found innocent, it went from Brent's a pedophile to the pedophile got away because they couldn't find enough information. And that is an unfortunate side effect of all of this. And For me, the fact that these two children were endangered 
is just a big part of this narrative that needs to be held in the memory of everyone who listens to it and that we need to remember to prevent this from happening again when you have a false accusation you know not only was there a false accusation two children were in danger it just wasn't it wasn't by brent and these two guys were never held accountable for their bullying really they weren't held accountable for manipulating children either they were not and part of the reason why they weren't is because i was taking the advice of the lawyer that i had at the time and it was a question of money and so instead of the justice aspect of what could have been a criminal charge it was to the lawyer that i had at that point in time it's like oh they're just too college students they don't have any money there's really no point in suing them because you're not going to get anything from them and so me being young dumb naive i went in by myself to the lawyer parents weren't involved in any of that i went in and got myself a lawyer trying to i literally was a pension pennies trying to get this get this lawyer i remember doing this just because i was so terrified of what could happen and he was advising me against it. So I guess at the end of the day, that was why none of that actually even happened. And I think it's important to say also for survivors of any of this, the money aspect isn't necessarily important. It's the fact that you have the ability to go after your abuser. And the unfortunate side effect of this is attorneys, they're looking for money. So I think that the attorney that Brent would have went to was looking for money, realized these are two college students. He's not going to get any money from this. So Brent didn't go forward with this because of this attorney advising him it's not worth it. I was struggling to pay him 300 bucks. I'm paying it out of my own pocket because I wasn't about to tell my parents that I was going to an attorney. And and he's not going to do it pro bono because then he takes whatever he wins. But if there's zero winnings, then he gets paid nothing. Yeah, and he picked up on that. He just kind of picked up on the facts like, okay, well, he's got a kid that doesn't have any money and these other two kids, they don't have any money. So that that's he just went straight money. That's all there is to it. And so me being naive, that's what I did. I just made that decision. But I never, at that point in time, in the moment of all this, I was not thinking justice in a way. I was not thinking holding the two of them accountable for their actions. I was not thinking that. You were victimized. So, I mean, if we can give you a pass, (laughs) this is it. It's like asking women to come forward after they've been victimized. And it's like, sometimes it's just like, it's in the past. I want to just move forward now. Or men. Yeah, I get it. And I've taken my licks and gotten my wounds and just moved on and just I don't want to deal with the past anymore and it's just sad because we want to think that karma is real we want to think that justice is served we like to have that idea but as we know especially in the true crime community that justice isn't always right you're perfect one of the things that we did in the series that we realized would be important is that because Brent and I were both there when all this happened of course, we wanted listeners to take the emotional roller coaster that we had gone on. And I say we, knowing that Brent went on it much more than I did. I was just there as a supporter of a friend and someone who was there to help. But it was important for them to go through the emotions and go through the realization of how hard it is to defend yourself. So when you listen to the series, 
in the beginning of a series, you think Bryn is a pedophile. We present the case that these two men yeah. created. You hear their story so that you believe that Bryn is a pedophile. And then by the end of the series, you have this realization because you're presented the facts over time as we learned them that the story isn't what you thought, that Brent is innocent, Brent was victimized, that these children were victimized. So the series is four episodes, and I remember at episode three, listeners were commenting and writing in saying, oh man, the third episode just dropped, Brent is so innocent, I really hope that these guys were held accountable and that Brent went on to be some become this huge successful person like he deserved it and then we release episode four and then episode four comes out and they're like wow that wasn't the ending that we thought we were going to get or that we wanted that we wanted right and i think it was frustrating for listeners just equally as it's frustrating for brent brent why don't you explain how we're all here today yeah Yeah. At the end of episode four, you find out that I didn't grow up in a musical family. I didn't have a musical background support that after I got my degree that I would instantly be able to dive into the profession and be successful. Whereas Sean had that support regardless of the incident that occurred so instead of the heroic or the, the wishful story that everybody kind of thought was that I hope Brent went on to become a successful composer and that he's doing great compositions. And it turned out to where my college uh, program failed. I kind of went into this dark hole for a while, just this depressive state and started working at the family vacuum shop. And Sean, because of the connections that he had, instantly got into Butler University, finished out his degree, and then within less than a year, he was out at USC in their film scoring program, finishing up a program, and has gone on to get several titles within television series, which is, was, and still is, my dream. And I think that all of that, if this didn't happen, if I didn't get sideswiped by all of this, I think I would have finished out my degree. My dream was to go to Berkeley School of Music in, well, originally in Boston, but I was particularly interested in the master's program in Valencia, Spain, and that's what I wanted to do, and it just never happened. It's not for the lack of not applying because I applied, but because of the accreditation that I had, I didn't get in, and the lack of support. I received no letters of recommendation from any of my college professors and they wouldn't do any of it because of the accusations that were made. But yet at the same time, Sean got letters of recommendation from those professors and went on and was able to get right into Butler and continue on to get his degrees. So not exactly the story that people would have hoped, but that just kind of goes to show that not everybody, I guess, has the happy ending that, that you're looking for. I, I don't know. No, it's, it's life isn't fair. <laughs> yeah, life isn't fair. That's a, that's a good, yeah, I was and trying to the, put the, the words yeah. to it. That's accurate. Shittily enough, yeah. the faster we figure out that life isn't fair, 
the better you can move on. Yeah. And well, and I think that progressed into a different journey. And it really did. I went on to start my own company that it kind of went belly up over COVID, but I mean, that's okay. I had this journey out in California for a short bit that was semi-successful. It wasn't really what I was looking for, but in that process, I went back to get software certifications and a six-month program in audio engineering at the Musicians Institute in California. It's right off of Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, got a lot of support from there, learned a heck ton of knowledge and applied that to what we're doing here today. So that's why we're sitting here today and come in complete circle is because once I completed that program and my business basically kind of like, well, we'll keep that, you know, short, sweet and simple. It kind of imploded on itself over COVID, but I ended up back here in Indiana and Shane and I met for coffee and here we are. Yeah. I was like, I have some editing. And I was like, I don't have any composing stuff, but I have audio edits that you can do. And then that led into, well, let's recreate this song. Let's compose this music. So then. And then I'm sitting here because I needed a composer and I hired you to make a freaking song for me. (laughs) Yeah. So you came here from Kansas City. Yeah. Yeah, drove all the way from Kansas City. And you did a fabulous job. Thank you. Thank you. But I do understand the impact. I know that I went through some shit. I had Facebook groups with thousands of people in them say a bunch of shit about me, destroy my reputation, and then they went after my wife. And it's like, you know, they're throwing the Skittles at you, but as soon as they throw them at your friend, it's no longer cool. Yeah. And when they threw the Skittles at my wife, I'm like, okay. Game over. You know, but, (laughs) but then again, when I would lash out, just makes me work look right. worse yeah and i think that i went into a horrible fit of depression yeah and not even realizing it that lasted for years it was very triggering for me to trust anyone any yeah. podcaster anyone that would message me i removed myself off social media and then and i think it was during covid my marriage has pretty much disintegrated moved out no longer with my wife. It was Thanksgiving in, I think, 2020. And that was the day I decided I want to die. Took a bunch of pills. And really, I it all goes back from like just this decline from when I was attacked by thousands of people for months yeah. online. It just destroys everything you think about and feel about yourself and you might have a lot of people that love and support you, but you don't recognize that anymore. You just see the negative. Well, and that's obviously it's a different situation, but with this, at least for those first couple of years after all this happened, there was a deep depression. And the thing of it is, is I didn't realize it was even happening. And I wasn't having the suicidal thoughts, but when I look back at it, I was physically harming myself with food and that binge eating, it still occurs. You mentioned Thanksgiving. I just remember Thanksgivings because my parents never really kept like junk food and stuff in the house, but I just remember like Thanksgiving dinners, I would legitimately make myself sick 
And I would go back and just sit in the bathroom at my aunt's house for an hour. And most they wouldn't even know that I'd be back there. I'd just kind of intermittently go back there and just sit on the toilet, just absolutely just miserable. And I didn't recognize that that was a depression. I didn't recognize that that was even binging. But now that I look back at it, all of that kind of stuff is attributed to what happened. I had very self-destructive behavior, but it didn't come out in drug use. It didn't come out in eating, you know, or yeah. I mean, it, it came out in, I would have great opportunities to collaborate with other people. I would have celebrities, huge podcasts, whatever, reach out to do something or an event to do. And I just turned it all down. Yeah. And I, I isolated all of my friends out of my life. I self-isolated to the point where I just pushed everyone away. I find myself doing that quite a bit. I've gotten a lot of composition projects that people have asked me to do and I've turned them down. I want to be super excited about them or just projects like even working with our assistant editor and longtime friend Sky. I've been trying to kind of encourage him. It sounds funny. I've been encouraging him to encourage me to write music, but there's something that happened in those days that caused me to, it almost like takes the, it's like an enjoyment thing. Like it just sucked the life out of like my dreams and just made me question everything that I was doing to the point now where when I sit down to write sometimes, I struggle with just doing it for the pure enjoyment, which is what I used to love to do. And I honestly think just the subconscious of all that, or however you say it, the, the psyche of all that is just kind of stems back to all of that, I guess. Yeah, I think it was a Nine Inch Nails lyric. It was just a fading fucking reminder of who I used to be. Yeah. yeah. And that sums it up. Like, yeah. I used to be a great podcaster. Yeah. I used to be something good. Yeah. I used to be a great composer. It's almost that self-negative talk in a way that has ruined ruined the love for it in a way. And it's not intentional. And like in my heart, it's like, I want to do this. Like I want to do it. But then when it comes down to doing it, I don't do it. I end up sitting on the couch and watching a movie or something like that instead of actually doing it. And I'll get like excited for like brief moments and then just not. But I honestly think it just stems back to all of that. Well, and just imagine if like, lemon meringue pie was your favorite thing on earth and then you were kidnapped and beaten and forced to eat lemon meringue pie for like yeah. 48 hours while you're being tortured yeah you don't like lemon meringue pie, anymore. pie anymore yeah and, and it's, it's yeah. this was your dream and then this was destroyed yeah and it's regardless that it was still your joy it's a reminder of what had happened yeah. unfortunately yeah and that's sadly like why i just stepped away from social media. I stepped away from engaging with my fans and my listeners yeah. because I didn't know who was handing me flowers or who was about to stab me. Mm -hmm. That's I'm sure a very relatable feeling it's, when somebody messages real. You know? Yeah, it's very real. And so we're talking about passions and doing what you love, but it's also, and I know we've talked about this a lot, just outside just the podcast, but with dating with me, you know, I'm still single, but it has affected my confidence, my ability to be assured of myself when I talk with women. 
And uh, it's just kind of a fact. I mean, in these days and age, how do you meet people? Actually, I think a lot of people meet online, but I have shied away from a lot of that. How do you know they're real? Yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about this too, like with Tinder, you know, for example, we'll, we'll just, you know, bring up the Tinder thing. It's like, I have been on there a few times, but I would say good, like I'll swipe on like 50 and out of those 50, maybe two or three will hit and two of them will be spam or like a sex solicitor or something to that effect, you know? And then the one may be real, but then they just swiped because they saw one picture of you and then got looking and then they weren't really actually interested in you all, at all to begin with because they're all doing the same thing. They're all just swiping and half of them are just crap, you know? Yeah, I was going to say my short stint on Tinder, it was all what I call cam scams and, and you know, just... Thank uh, you, ma'am. Yeah. yeah, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Cams and yeah. scams. And yeah, so there wasn't anyone just, real. Yeah, it's just tough to meet people and with all that kind of happened, it just makes it a little bit worse because I'm, I I used to be bold. I'd like to say that I used to be bold and confident, but those initial conversations and startups are still just a little bit backwards because of everything that happened. But once I get to know you, and of course you guys know, I cut up all the time, you know, we have fun. And so I have no problems holding a conversation. It's, I think it's just those initial starts. That was something that I lost after the shit went down with me is I lost my sense of humor. I yeah. like no longer was funny. Well, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I'm afraid to be funny because I'm afraid to say something that is going to get me in trouble. Wish we had more of a positive note to end on. <laughs> no, that was a little sad, wasn't it? I mean, that it's not yeah. always a hunky dory outcome, and we're both in better places now. Yeah, I yeah. think we all are in better places. So, yeah, you know. for sure. So, for anyone listening, there is hope because we made it through.